0: I'm Corey Astle
1: and I'm Kyle Salmon
0: welcome to conservative minds a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism what does it mean to call yourself a conservative what did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today we explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present each episode we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation if you want to join the discussion Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, that's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 13, we read The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek from 1944.
1: Friedrich August von Hayek was born in Vienna in 1899. He was from an academic family of minor nobility. His father was a medical doctor and both of his grandfathers were professors. When Hayek turned 18 in 1917, he joined an Austrian artillery unit that saw action on the Italian front in the First World War. He was decorated for bravery, but lost some of his hearing in the process. After the war, Hayek attended the University of Vienna, where he earned doctorates in law and political science in 1921 and 1923. After receiving the degrees, Hayek was hired by Ludwig von Mises to work on the legal and economic details of the Treaty of Saint-Germain. Later, he worked as research assistant to Jeremiah Jenks of New York University, compiling economic data on the American economy. Around this time, Hayek began to lose sympathy for the idea of democratic socialism and became a supporter of classical liberalism. With von Mises' help, Hayek founded and served as director of the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research before joining the faculty of the London School of Economics in 1931. In moving to London, he became one of the foremost public opponents of John Maynard Keynes arguing that private investment in public markets was a better road to economic growth in Britain than government spending programs. Austria was annexed by Nazi Germany in 1938, and Hayek chose to remain in Britain, becoming a British subject the same year. From 1940 to 1943, he wrote his most famous work, The Road to Serfdom, in an effort to explain that fascism, Nazism, and socialism all had common roots in central economic planning and empowering the state over the individual. The book was successful immediately, though wartime paper rationing made it difficult to obtain. An American reprint in 1945 found even greater popularity. In 1950, Hayek left the London School of Economics. He moved to the University of Chicago, where he spent the next 12 years. He completed another book, The Constitution of Liberty, in 1960, which had more limited success than The Road to Serfdom. Hayek returned to Europe in 1962, accepting a position at the University of Freiburg in West Germany there he began work on his next book, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, which was eventually published in three volumes in 1973, 76, and 79. During that time, he taught at the University of Salzburg for a time before returning to Freiburg before retiring. In 1974, Hayek was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. Other awards followed. Hayek was appointed a Companion of Honor in 1984 by Queen Elizabeth II on the advice of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. In 1991, President George H.W. Bush awarded Hayek the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Hayek died the next year at the age of 92.
0: Hayek's central theme in this book is the choice between individualism and socialism and collectivism. And socialism for him is not limited to leftist movements. As he published this work at the height of World War II, Hayek was equally concerned with socialism on the right as well as the left. In this book, he contrasts the Enlightenment project of liberal individualism on the one hand and collectivist ideologies of national socialism, fascism, and communism on the other hand. He sees the latter col- uh, cluster as all mortally opposed to individualism. For Hayek, communism and fascism are two sides of the same coin. Both categorically despise classic liberal individualism and both lead straight to totalitarianism. That's the argument he's going to make. So he begins this text by sounding the alarm. He says, for at least 25 years before the specter of totalitarianism became a real threat, we had progressively been moving away from the basic ideas on which Western civilization has been built. That is away from liberal individualism. We have progressively abandoned the freedom in economic affairs without which personal and political freedom has never existed in the past. This is something, obviously, that Milton Friedman will will build upon about a decade later. He says, although we've been warned by Tocqueville and Lord Acton that socialism means slavery, we have steadily moved in the direction of socialism. And he he lays out, sort of describes how the success of the Enlightenment project has brought us to, to a point where it's no longer enough. We their, their greater ambitions. He says, wherever the barriers to the free exercise of human ingenuity were removed, man became rapidly able to satisfy ever-widening ranges of desires. And Of course, we know this. The Enlightenment Project, liberalism, economic freedom, it created human flourishing at a, at a scale previously unfathomable. There can be no doubt, he says, that it's, the Enlightenment Project's success surpassed man's wildest dreams. That by the beginning of the 20th century, The working man in the Western world had reached a degree of material comfort, security, and personal independence, which a hundred years before had seemed scarcely possible. But, here's where he just sounds the alarm, with the success has also grown ambition. What had been an inspiring promise seemed no longer enough, the rate of progress far too slow. The principles which had made this progress possible in the past have come to be regarded more as obstacles to speedier progress impatiently to be brushed away than as the conditions for the preservation of what had already been achieved. Now, if that doesn't, you know, ring echoes to today, I'm not sure what does.
1: Yeah. And it's, I think his, I think his key insight to, as you mentioned, that we keep returning to in, the, in this book is the idea that socialism and fascism are not opposites. They're each, they're sort of like the same church, but different sects. And I think he makes that point. Yeah. Each one views sense. each other as a heresy, not as an opponent. You can imagine when he's writing this in Britain by that point the war on fascism is going hundred percent but they've also had to make common cause with the Soviet Union so it would it would be easy I think for even people who believed in you know the uh, capitalist democracy that held sway in Britain and the United States to say well the, you know the Soviets are different and his point is no they're not they're not different these are both strains of the same belief that wants to sort of snuff out individualism. And replace it with collectivism. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the points he gets to in chapter two is that democracy and socialism both claim to want to increase equality. That's the uh, that's the selling point that advocates of each are going to push. But as he puts it, different. He, he quotes he quotes Tocqueville, who we'll get into later this season. So the difference is while, so, while democracy seeks equality and liberty, socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. Mm-hmm. I think that's, a, that's an important point because they're they're both trying to sell the same thing, it, but a lot of it's socialists sort of take equality and make it into a, they reshape it the way an advertiser might when he's trying to put a bad product out on the market and justify it and say, well, we've got equality too. Um, it's just the kind of equality that you have to listen to everything we say.
0: Right, right, and I love the point that he makes here, <clears throat> multiple times throughout the book. Th- there is a reason that we've created so much freedom and human flourishing, and uh, an ability for just a much higher quality of life that wasn't fathomable in in previous centuries, and that is, it's because of a movement towards individualism, this Enlightenment project of liberal democracy. What he's identifying is. You know, it's kind of like this is what got us here, and now all of a sudden you're pointing to that and calling it the problem, and you know it's only going to lead in one other direction. We're we're going to we're not going to march forward. We're going to recede and turn around and head in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Let's let's credit what's given us this much success, and so and build on that rather than turning back to these these other ideologies that have proven not to work.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a huge lesson. For the democratic socialists of today uh, who you know they go around and say capitalism hasn't worked democracy hasn't worked and you look around at this country and at other countries of the west and and of the east and countries like japan and south korea where capitalism and democracy together have lifted a, an entire people out of poverty and want into mm-hmm. you know unforeseen never before seen levels of prosperity and liberty and you look at that and say, how can you look at that in the face and say, Well, this system doesn't work. We need to blow it up. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy. I mean, I think some of it's just a lack of historical knowledge. But I mean, maybe it's as he says, it's it's frustration that well it's not working faster. And that's I mean, I guess if you're a if you're a twenty seven year old congresswoman, that's that's a sort of let it get get it done now kind of we're not moving fast enough. You know, I mean that's that's definitely a cry of youth. Because it seems like, well, look, I'm a, I'm a grown-up now. Things should be fixed. Consider even just since the end of the Cold War how many people worldwide have been lifted out of poverty by capitalism. It's pretty fast.
0: Absolutely. And, and we, we dived into that during the Friedman episode and we'll probably return to it again and again. And I think he, sees, he says basically like the progress is taken for granted, you know, and it's taken as a given. He says, what had been achieved came to be regarded as a secure and imperishable possession acquired once and for all. It's kind of like we pocketed that, all the gains, you know, all the freedoms, all the liberty that we had, we've already pocketed all that. So he says, further advance can be expected, not along the old lines that made progress possible, but only by a complete remodeling of society. Like, okay, well, that can only take us so far. Capitalism can only take us so far and we need to make it work for, for everyone. So You know, how do we do that? Well, to the point that you just made, he says, with the decline of the understanding of the way in which the free system worked, our awareness of what depended on the existence all to the I mean, at this point, it's it's the great uh, paradox of the information age is we have access to more information. uh, It's easier, simpler, you know, available at your fingertips. But very little of that is actually being absorbed by people. And when it comes to understanding even basic economics or how the, how the free market works, there's just a profound ignorance, especially with, you know, rising generation of, uh, I won't even say the millennials, but there's a lot of them, but also, you know, in this, in the, in the next generation of whatever you want to call generation Z or the I gen, whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, these kids don't have a clue about how the free system works. They don't understand how they got their phone. They don't understand how they have unfettered access to almost unlimited free time. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, maybe it's not growing up with the specter of communism as a, as an equally powerful force in the world, the way we did. I mean, and we're probably that last generation that had to think about that as a concern that, you know, the other side might win this, this cold war. It's, you know, it's not necessarily going to go our way. And maybe you yeah, the triumph of, democracy, the triumph of capitalism makes you take it for granted. It's still shocking to see people just a few years ago, even people old enough to know better, like Bernie Sanders talking about Venezuela, like it was a great experiment, oh, it's yeah. gonna, you know, so I mean, they took a middle income country with great natural resources and drove it into famine, despair, you know, refugees are streaming out of it and that didn't even mm-hmm. take that long. I mean. how how bad is communism when you could do that to a country that was in pretty decent shape i mean hayek's good reading for for this generation and the ones that come after too because we seem to want to keep forgetting these lessons
0: absolutely and you know folks might listen to this podcast and say oh these guys you know chicken littles screaming about socialism socialism coming to eat your children um (laughs) but the fact is like there's this there's this assumption that you know the martin luther king quote about the the arc of history is long but bends towards justice there's there's an assumption that that is actually true and i don't I, I don't take that for granted for one second i mean the arc of history can change in a moment there is no reason in or no law of the universe that says like america's free now and tomorrow it won't be you know that it, it continue it, it will be forever and into infinity no i mean it can change on a dime and Weaver says ideas matter and the trends matter and you know that's that's what makes this current you know attitude of you know mo- millennials and igen to me so so concerning and so alarming is they take it for granted they pocket all that we have and think that you know what what happened in germany in the 1930s can never happen here but in fact it absolutely can
1: yeah no i i i've taken issue with that that line of thinking too the uh I mean, that, that is kind of the progressive ideal though, is that we're, humanity is going on a certain course toward a certain goal and that, that goal is whatever progressives believe at the time, you know, so today where it's equal income, equality and intersectionalism, mm-hmm. but you know, every, every generation of progressives has this idea that, well, we're just going towards that goal and look at the course of history. But looking at it looking at a history in a little more fine grained look, there. are at definitely times where things have regressed, uh, for centuries, you know, empires fell, chaos grew. And uh, I think that itself, that view of history is a big difference between conservative and progressive. So we, we know human nature and it doesn't necessarily tend towards us being, you know, kind, gentle, sharing, you know, happy mm-hmm. people in the future we, we could be just as low and brutish in the 22nd century as we were in the second century absolutely to kind of get a little more back to hayek he he um in chapter three gets into the idea of planning and that i think is a theme throughout the book is that the difference between the socialist and the and the capitalist and the idea that planning he's like you know he's not against the idea that we should plan for things that we should handle problems rationally with forethought, but who's doing the planning? And in our system, everybody can plan out his own life to the extent he can. Uh, sometimes things come up, but we we all get to look at our own situation and say, here's how I think the best way to get out of this. Here's the problem to attack first. Here's the financial problem. I want to, I want to pay this down. I want to earn more money this way. I want to, you know, arrange my life this way. Whereas in socialism, it's one plan. What the thing I took from Mike the first time I read him years ago is that the problem of collectivism is when you only have one plan, you absolutely have to get it right Mm -hmm. or else the entire country will go to hell. Whereas in our current system, if I plan my life badly, that's not going to sink you. All right. You know, vice versa. And um, it might hurt my immediate family and some of my friends, but it's not going to, the fact that I have a wrong idea about something isn't going to drag everybody else down. And the fact that everyone's thinking up these different ideas, we can learn from each other too. Mm-hmm. You know, I might see what my neighbor's doing and say, that's the, that guy's got the right idea. That's the way to get out of debt. That's the way to, you know, improve my house or make my family happier. But uh, just the, the one big plan is uh, it, it just seems like there's no way that could possibly benefit all of the people all the time.
0: Right, and it assumes that you can capture all of the people's individual goals and hopes and aspirations. The planning makes Mm -hmm. these utilitarian assumptions that, and he he pushes back on, he says, the welfare and happiness of millions cannot be measured on a single scale of less or more. The welfare of people depends on a great many things. To direct all activities according to a single plan presupposes agreement on a complete rank and order of needs and values, right? So how do, how do you measure happiness? Well, I mean, these days, pollsters will ask questions like, do you feel happy? You know, I mean, these are all subjective questions. But when it comes to, you know, pursuing your own happiness, and your own, your life, the way that, you know, you see fit, in our individualistic, pluralistic, individual, liberal society, we can sort of create that meaning and purpose Ourselves and we can pursue it on our own. In, in a planning situation, there's this assumption that we're going to take the mass of all happinesses and subtract the mass of all unhappinesses, and somehow, you know, through through that massive calculation, we're going to make everybody equally happy. But the the fact of the matter is, what what ends up happening is the leaders, the planners, they're preferences he says it's their preferences that that rule the day and they're going to dictate it according to what they think is best and i'll also note that you know these in utilitarian mindset like uh, a a, a subtraction here is offset by an an addition there so you can have well you know the means justify the ends the the, Mm. the society is better off if we throw these people in the gulag because you know, they're causing problems, they're dissidents, you know, they're uh, disrupting the public fabric. So let's subtract them and their lives and their happiness. We'll throw them in the gulag in order to plus up the happiness of these people. I mean, that's, this is the kind of calculation that has to be made. And it's just absurd.
1: Yeah, that's why I've always thought utilitarianism ends in the gulag every time. And he, he makes that point that there's no way to organize collectivist society except along dictatorial lines. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, once you're viewing men and women as just parts of an equation to balance, yeah, shave one off here, add one in over there, yeah, uh, done. Instead of looking at these each, each person as a, a means and an end in himself, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a gross calculation. It just sort of views people as no different than we'd view farm animals. You know, where well this one's gone mad, he's got to be put down. You know, that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Right. So. It comes at us in a in the guise of humanitarianism and kindness, but it's real savagery every time. And you'll never see a socialist country without labor camps, without executions, without thought crimes. His point about individuals being the best judges of their own interests is one that we also uh, kind of come back to a lot in modern society, especially that there was that book, What's the Matter with Kansas?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which was sort of an echo of an, another book, book by the same name in the thirties, I think by William Allen white, I forget who wrote the modern one, but you know, this, this idea that, well, look, people are poor, but they're voting Republican, the party of the rich man, they must have gotten bamboozled. They must be confused about their interests. Mm -hmm. And I think most people know what their interests are. You know, you might not think they're good. I might not think they're good, but they're, they're the things that matter to those people, you know, and, I think we can't really tell people they're voting against their interests because we don't we don't know their interests. You know, that, that, that makes the same kind of assumption that there's only one interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like how he, here hear on the left a lot that the most important thing is income inequality. I think most people don't care about income inequality. Right. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people care about poverty, but that's not the same thing. You know, I mean, I think most, most people who are thinking about poverty would say, well, if every poor person was twice as well off but every rich person was five times as well off. Would society be better? It'd be more unequal, but people who lack the necessities of life might have them. And people who had bare necessities might have a little extra, a little way to get ahead, a little comfort and leisure in their life. And that I think if you know, so that sort of calculation, people look at things different ways. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, uh, that's what, that's what makes our thing work. But, wait, it does drive central planners crazy.
0: Yeah. so he specifically says individuals should be free to follow their own values and preferences rather than somebody else's individuals to determine their own ends, which is just kind of belaboring the point we've just made. But in, in collectivist communist fascist societies, he says you must organize the whole society and its resources to a common purpose. And again, you know, not to belabor the point, but common, pr- who gets to decide that? Um, mm. You know, within our individualistic society, there is some atomization and, and you know, to Nisbet's um, thesis, like we have to figure out ways to create community and, and strengthen social bonds. But at least you get to pursue your own preferences and your own values rather than serving some common purpose that supposedly captures all of your own values and thoughts and hopes and dreams. Hayek makes the point over and over again in this book you know, who gets to decide that? Well, the small group, the vanguard, the leaders, they're the ones who get to decide it, and it leads straight to totalitarianism.
1: Yeah, and I think it's um, it's a theme we've come across before. Uh, like you said, in Friedman, uh, Goldwater follows these lines, too. It, it's also, I, I found myself thinking, though, is there any ultimate aim of society that we we would think it's permissible for our government to aim at? You know, and some of the other lines of thinking of books we've read this this year, like George Wills, uh, Robert Bork's book, uh, Pat Buchanan's book, certainly, we, you know, they both, they all three seem to have some idea that society should have a goal. And it's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a goal of virtue. I'm not sure what Buchanan's goal was exactly. Uh, virtue was probably part of it. But well, I, I think he know.
0: shares some of these, this, these, the socialist on the the right uh, you know right wing mm-hmm. socialist goals that I think Hayek is pushing back on here like the idea that since people left been left behind which you know is a legitimate concern but our answer is what we need is strong government or a strong man to come in and right. clean house and make it right and make sure that we share the wealth
1: yeah I guess I guess Hayek and and would would say that in in freedom we have the the best opportunity to find our own virtue and, you know, by everybody searching for virtue in his own way, just like searching for economic solutions in his own way, we have the best opportunity to say, you know, to, uh, be individual laboratories of virtue, I guess, in the same way that Brandeis called the state's laboratories of democracy. We can, Mm -hmm. we can each of us try to achieve the good in our lives and, you can look at what other people are doing and see what works for them. But uh, I just, I just thought it was worth bringing up too that. Not every conservative thinker is totally on board with the idea of the government being out of the virtue business, but high certainly yeah, is.
0: Sure. We, we've discussed this already, but I think the problems with socialism by democracy, that's, I think he, he spends a lot of time on this. So let's dive into it a little bit. I think he says the, what happens in this evolution our successes create new ambitions. And he says the inability of democratic bodies to carry out what seems to be a clear mandate of the people will inevitably cause dissatisfaction with democratic institutions. You know, hello, 2019. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean and you have you have separate sides who who are frustrated for different reasons. But you know, some some percentage, maybe twenty five percent of the population is quote unquote independent. But the fact that when you dive deeper into that data, you realize they're not independent in the middle. They're not moderates. They're more extreme on the right, more Mm -hmm. extreme on the left. And the dissatisfaction with democratic institutions, I mean, is just for good reason right now. I mean, you and I have discussed this multiple times, like how Congress is completely wrapped around the axle. Can't do the most basic things. You know, we just had another, the longest shutdown in American history. We can't seem to get out of, uh, get out of our own way what happens with the dissatisfaction well he says parliament's come to be regarded as ineffective talking shops unable or incompetent to carry out the tasks for which they have chosen the conviction grows that if efficient planning is to be done you know basically if we're going if we're going to achieve our goals if stuff's going to get done the direction must be taken out of politics and placed in the hands of experts permanent officials All right, so we've kind of already done that with the administrative state, right? Yes. Both uh, Obama and Trump are in the same space there. Like, okay, Congress won't do it. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and do it on my own, he says. uh, The inefficiency of democratic bodies to get stuff done will evoke stronger and stronger demands to give a single individual power to act decisively, and that's exactly what we're seeing with build the wall. And you know, Trump just declared a national emergency. Congress won't do this. I'll do it on my own. I can do it with my own power. Of course, that's going to get wrapped up in the courts, and you know, probably never am, will end up happening. But still, the the attitude, the posture, or you know, with with uh, Obama, he says. I mean, he had several examples of this. DACA is one. The mm-hmm. the uh, immigrant kids who were uh, brought here to America at a young age, and regardless of what you think about DACA, I have my own views. That was a a pretty breathtaking power grab to sort of say, I'm going to. I'm going to enforce the law according to my own, however I feel like, and we're just going to ignore Congress. I'd say the same thing about the Clean Power Plan, another, or uh, net neutrality. These are all instances of okay, Congress, you're not going to do it. Well, I'm just going to make a big power grab on my own, and the the Congress is just a talking shop. We hear what did Obama say? I I don't need Congress because I've got I've got a pen, and I got these agencies to go ahead and execute on. What we think needs to be done
1: yeah it's um on the one hand i i would say our system is set up that inaction is the default and that's for good reason i think uh, the founding fathers wanted our government to be limited and make it hard to make a law against anything or requiring anything because that that's the best way to preserve the people's liberties have fewer laws but at some point congress refuses to solve problems that the people want solved in any way but well, you know even in a way that's not the perfect way yeah it i mean how can you not be frustrated with democracy you know as we practice it it's it was it was not that different from what hayek was looking at in the 30s as as he was pursuing his profession in britain and it's and it's not restricted to america either i mean you look at the way britain is dealing with brexit today which is not dealing with it you look at some of these governments in Europe with the multi-party democracies like like Belgium, where it usually, after an election, takes a year to form a government because every different mm-hmm. party is squabbling with each other and won't compromise. I mean, Spain, I think, is getting towards a similar situation. It's frustrating. You know, people want action. People want action in the executive because that's the place where action comes from. And But I, I guess the, the increasing frustration makes them want to throw caution to the wind because we know what active executives can do. I mean, we're, people are aware of the idea of dictators, but yeah. I think they just, they, they see well, what's Congress even doing. I mean, we elect these guys. They sit around for two years. Republicans had complete control of government, all, you know, both houses and the presidency did very little. I mean, it, it's not, it's not surprising, I guess, that people would say, well, eh let's do something. I don't really care how it gets done. I mean, people like you and I care about things like the rule of law and, you know, process. following the constitution and doing things the right way and consent of the governed A lot of people just want results. And, uh, I think Hayek was seeing the same thing in his day and it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to know that people have seen this problem, discussed it, tried to solve it. And then here we are back again, doing the same thing.
0: Well, and to your point, like Western democratic societies, I mean, the structure is such that, especially in America, the structure is such that there will be gridlock. Now, I mean, we're probably at a a level of gridlock, probably not seen since maybe the civil war, you know, the run of the civil war, but you know, that ebbs and flows, but at all times it's the, the structure is such that it's not easy to get things done. And that's, you know, by design so that you you can't move too quickly. But the prevailing attitude becomes well, if things are going to get done, he says, the authority must be freed from democratic procedure. We've got to get around this, and he makes this really interesting point. And again, I don't want to, you know, go down the 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 Hitler bottomless pit. But he says Hitler did not have again he this this was published in 1944, so he is, this isn't just an ad Hitlerum, mm-hmm. and he's talking about the real Hitler who was alive at that time. Hitler did not have to destroy democracy. He merely took advantage of the decay of democracy at the critical moment, obtained the support of many to whom, though they detested Hitler, he yet seemed the only strong, only man strong enough to get things done. That's where it heads. That's where it leads is, okay, well, I don't like this guy. He's pretty, he's, he's, he's a deplorable, detestable human being, but it seems like maybe he could shake things up. He can get something done. And right now we just, we're not getting anything done. So let's give it a shot.
1: Yeah, we saw that on the right in 2016, and we will see it on the left in 2020 if they nominate somebody who's a radical. And there's going to be people who are more liberal than progressive, people who still believe in civil rights and limited government on the left. And there are some of those people, and they're going to look at the choices and say, well, Kamala Harris is pretty radical, but maybe she'll get it done. Maybe she'll get our policies Mm -hmm. in place, you know. And and they will make that choice the same way a lot of us on the right made that choice or didn't in in 2016. Yeah, it's it's frustrating.
0: Yeah, so he he says it leads to totalitarianism. That was the the primary concern and preoccupation of so many philosophers and economists during that time is, you know, that larger question of how in the world could could a Hitler or a Stalin come to power i mean how how could people sort of give up all of their freedoms and he says like basically this is the story of what we've been talking about today whoever has sole control of the means must also determine which ends are to be served which values are to be rated higher and which lower whoever controls all economic activity controls the means of all our ends in a directed economy the authority will use its power to assist some ends and prevent the realization of others the man or party strong enough to get things done is who will take control. The totalitarian regime created by is created by a demand for quick action. So, you know, we don't want to you know sound too alarmist and extreme, but the, the point he's making is it it starts slowly and then it falls quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, we we decide, okay, our society is not progressing at the speed that we believe it should and we're going to turn our backs on all of the liberal values that brought us to this point, that created all the success and human flourishing up to this point. We're going to say, that's not enough anymore. Now we need to take the next steps. And the next steps, you know, it's hard, especially in Western uh, democracies, in America, in in our three-branch system. Very difficult to get things done. Okay, so we get become even more frustrated and be like the Enlightenment project, liberal democracy, it hasn't gotten us where we need to go. We realized that we needed to kind of toss that and move in another direction. Even that's not working. Okay, let's find a strong man. Let's see if he can do it. Let's see if he can push things through and make things happen. No, he he, he still can't. Okay, let's give him more power. Let's push more in his direction. You know, it, it starts slowly, inch by inch, and then quickly um, we lose control.
1: And, and where it starts he noted was in, uh, in economic freedom, because none of these people said, let's give up all our freedom. Who needs it? You know, people still, people still value freedom and they still want to control their own lives. But economic freedom, I think he, Hayek says it's, it's easier to, it's easier to think, well, that's not as important. Right? It's just about money. I mean, plus he also points out that's the thing that we're used to controlling all ourselves. And it, it doesn't seem like something government would want. Why would the government want to balance my checkbook? right? Mm-hmm. But and then the socialists and other collectivists come in with the idea that, well, you've got these political freedoms, but what good are they if you don't have economic freedom, which they redefine to mean economic equality. So it, it becomes sort of the tip of the wedge to attack all freedom. And the way Hayek put it, he said it's often said that political freedom is meaningless without economic freedom. This is true enough, but in a sense, almost opposite from that in which the phrase is used by our planners, the economic freedom, which is the prerequisite of other freedom cannot be the freedom from economic care, which socialists promise us, and which can only be obtained by relieving the individual at the same time of the necessity and power of choice. It must be the f- freedom of our economic activity, which with the right of choice, inevitably also carries the risk and the responsibility of that right. Mm-hmm. Friedman focused on that, too, in his book, the idea that you these are not separate liberties. They go hand in hand. If you take away economic freedom, then it, it kills political freedom, because with the government controls that much of the economy, they can crush anybody who doesn't want to go along. In the same way that somebody who says something you know, pretty far out there these days, they'll often be this social media mob. They'll... Fire that guy you know, mm-hmm. harass him in the streets you know bother his family send death threats to his house and, and that's just regular folks doing that
0: right
1: if the government had that power I mean what what is political freedom worth then because it, it could never be exercised
0: hmm so so Bernie Sanders and Democratic socialists are gonna listen to this podcast I'm sure they do uh, <laughs> and they're gonna say oh give me a break please guys we're not talking about taking away your freedom. We're just trying we're talking about tweaking capitalism so that it works for for everyday people and, and not just the billionaires and millionaires. And Hayek's response to that, he says, liberal socialism lives in pure theory, while in practice, socialism is always totalitarianism. Collectivism has no room for wide humanitarian liberalism. The person only respected as a member of the group, deriving dignity from membership and not merely from being a man. It always leads towards illiberal and anti-democratic places, you know. He says, "Okay, I mean that's what you have in mind is a tweak here and a tweak there, and it does start slowly, inch by inch, but it leads in one direction, in one direction only." And this idea that you can create classical liberal socialism, those are contradiction terms. It's a, it's an oxymoron. It, it doesn't exist it only it exists in theory but it doesn't exist in nature and once we the farther down that road we get the more dangerous it becomes because it leads again to totalitarianism
1: yeah and it happens every time too so you think people eventually take the lesson you could see in 1917 people might think this bold socialist experiment is going to go someplace because it hadn't really ever been done before but after that you know after after china after vietnam North Korea, and now Venezuela, Cuba. Eventually you'd start to think, wow, every place they do socialism, it always ends up with, you know, totalitarianism. And then you get these socialists and say, Well, that's not the that's not the real socialism, you know? I mean, that's not really they're doing it wrong. Well, everybody's doing it wrong then. Because it happens that way every single time. Right. <laughs> I don't I don't know how many more times it has to happen before people take that message.
0: Mm-hmm is it the last chapter we read chapter 12 i i wanted to point out he is dead serious about saying we're not just talking about bernie sanders socialism we're not just talking about uh, stalinism and soviet russia we're talking about socialism on the right as well leaves in the same direction either direction you go Individuals have no rights, but only duties to the common good. Powers given to the whole society is constituted by the whole, not a collection of individuals in these in these systems. And to the point that you made at the very beginning of of the podcast, basically, like these are two sects, not of of the same religion, not two different religions. They they'll fight each other in the same way that Methodists will fight, let's say, uh, Presbyterians over proper way to baptize or whatever mm-hmm. versus like a completely different system. And both socialism on the right and socialism on the left, their top enemy, their key enemy is individualism and giving power to the individual and the, bringing it down to the lowest level where people can seek their own destinies and, and follow their own virtue and values path. Anyway, it's equally dangerous on, on both ends.
1: He, he makes a great point about what unites those, too also is the idea that it's easier to organize society against something than for something Mm -hmm, because it's it's easier to get people to agree that something or someone is a problem it's harder to get them to say all right what do we do then you know how do we Mm -hmm. how do we fix that problem but that's why in in all of these systems you know socialism on the left starts out as an internationalist idea socialism on the, the right you know fascism isn't more of a nationalist, but they both end up being nationalists because they end up focusing against external enemies, because it's always somebody else who's wrecking the system. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's not working yet. But they also have always this focus on an internal enemy. Where, you know, is the, uh, the Soviets first, they focused on the aristocracy and the, the czar and his people. And they killed all of them or drove them off. And then, you know, it still wasn't working. So it was the kulaks, the, the rich peasants. And these people were, didn't have that much, but they had more than, than the poorest. And they were driven out. And then Stalin had various ethnicities that he thought were traitorous to the Soviet Union, shipped them all off to Siberia like the Chechens. And it's the same the same thing you saw in Nazi Germany where it was the Jews that was the problem and the, the gypsies and the homosexuals and, and also, of course, the communists because they were, as he said, they're sort of a heretic sect of fascism. Mm-hmm but it's always that focus on the, there's, there's this enemy. That's, that's the reason this isn't working yet guys, because these folks are ruining it and we have to ruin them.
0: Right.
1: Neither of these systems ever got to the point where they ran out of enemies. They just changed the focus, you know, I mean, Yes, yes. And it's democratic capitalism doesn't need an enemy. And that's maybe that shows the virtue of that system is it, it just, it just leaves you to do your own thing. It doesn't, we don't mm-hmm. need the state to designate which ideas or which peoples are enemies. Right. We just, you know, it's just freedom.
0: Right. And to your point, it just bounces from one to the next, like 1984. Like we've always been at war with Oceania, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have a new enemy, but who is our old enemy? Always been our enemy. Right. Right. Anyway, closing thoughts on
1: uh, Hayek? Uh, well, just much of what we said already is that Hayek is, I mean, he's a product of his time, and his his main point being the similarity of fascism and and communism. And that I think, if we read it in nineteen ninety nine, we would have thought, I don't know how much use this has anymore. Here we are, twenty years after that, and right. communism's on the rise, and fascism, as always, rises in reaction to it. Uh, and Absolutely. we we see people who they might not call themselves fascists but they act as fascists and we see people like antifa who act like there's something new but they're just old-fashioned communist thugs and it's these same impulses are attracting people these same hatreds are being focused from those groups from all the lost boys who join these groups and want some sort of meaning in life it's like well it's the millionaires and the billionaires that are screwing us over or it's the it's the globalist elite that's screwing us over. So, so I I Hayek has a lot to teach us about how that went the last time and not much good to say about it. So if you're looking to understand sort of the violent political currents of the modern day, looking at, at Hayek's thoughts on it from the forties is not a bad place to start.
0: Absolutely. And as you said, like our our parents' generation and even ours would look in horror at socialism and, and basically, you know, as a politician claiming socialism would be basically the death nail to your career. But what we're seeing now is a, a sea change where we had a rising generation of millennials and, and iGen, whatever, who don't understand the real difference between between freedom and socialism I just feel like this book is so timely for now. You know, you can read through and again, listen to all this and say, oh, that's just alarmist. You know, you guys are the big, bad social monster is, is coming to destroy the village. But I, I think that there's real fear here. And people just, we've got to get this message out. People got to understand we got to, we need more Hayek's to stand up and say, this isn't a game. There are real risks here if we go down this road. And it is not true, you know, d- that democracy is the natural state for human beings, and that the arc of history is heading towards more and more freedom. It's the arc of history is heading towards nowhere in particular, and and we are at the helm. I think we should take these his uh, his Hayek's warning seriously. Okay, next time we're going to start a two part series on Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America, which he published in eighteen thirty five. I am really excited for that. So hopefully he'll join us then. Thank you.